Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about sodium levels in COVID-19. A new study in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism shows the relationship between abnormal sodium levels and greater risk of death and respiratory failure in patients with COVID-19. The title of that study is Dysnatremia is a Predictor of Morbidity and Mortality in Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. Joining me today are two authors of that study, Dr. Plutarchus Zulis of University College London and the Whittington Health NHS Trust in London, and Dr. Julian Wong, also at the Whittington Health NHS Trust. Thank you both for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you very much. Dr. Wong, your study looks at the impact of abnormal sodium concentration in patients with COVID-19. Let's first talk about abnormal sodium concentrations, a condition called dysnatremia. How prevalent is this condition? So dysnatremia is a collection of both abnormally high and abnormally low sodium. So I'll start with low sodium called hyponatremia. That's actually really common. It's the most common electrolyte abnormality in hospitalized patients. And somewhere around 15 to 20% of hospitalized patients might experience hyponatremia. And in ambulatory clinics, it's about 7%. So it's a really, really common condition. By contrast, hypernatremia is much more rare. Um, And the main reason for that is the really powerful hormonal and behavioral mechanisms that defend against it. So there's a hormone called antidiuretic hormone. Uh, It's also called vasopressin, which makes the urine more concentrated and so prevents water loss. And it also makes you feel very, very thirsty. So usually we see hypernatremia mainly in people where there's a breakdown in these kind of defense mechanisms or those who can't access water. That explains a little bit about hypernatremia, but could you talk a little bit more about what are the causes of dysnatremia, both hypo and hyper? This time around, I'll start with hypernatremia, the rarer of the two. In general, it's a problem with unreplaced water loss. So that's by far the most common cause, and much less common would be a problem with too much sodium intake. So you can lose water from a number of sources. You can lose it from your skin. You can lose it from your gastrointestinal tract through diarrhea or vomiting, or you can lose it through your urine. And that antidiuretic hormone that I mentioned earlier, if either you can't make that hormone or it doesn't work properly, you get a condition called diabetes insipidus that makes you uh, lose abnormally amounts of dilute urine. You can also have a condition where you have an osmotically active substance that sucks water out of cells and out of the body. So typically we might see that with glucose. So in conditions like diabetic ketoacidosis or high glucose conditions where you you get uh, abnormal amounts of water loss and inadequate replacement then causes hypernatremia. Uh, So with hyponatremia, there are a lot of different causes for it, but the two most common causes are either appropriate amount of antidiuretic hormone made because the circulation volume is low and therefore the body is trying to compensate by retaining water 
to increase the circulation or inappropriately made antidiuretic hormone, which can be in response to a number of different pathologies, but commonly something like bacterial pneumonia. I noticed that you didn't mention dehydration. Is there a reason why? The reason we don't see hypernatremia so commonly is that the sense of thirst is so powerful and so unpleasant that most people would have a behavioral change where they would just drink more in order to prevent hypernatremia from ever occurring. Also, they would make such concentrated urine that they wouldn't become dehydrated. So it's the combination of hormonal changes that protect us as well as behavioral changes that mean that we don't tend to dehydrate. We would see that exception in people who either can't sense thirst or can't act on their thirst. So for example, young children or disabled elderly people who are unable to reach water, in that population, we would see hypernatremia more commonly. How does dysnatremia affect our overall health, whether it's hyper or hypo? So both hyper and hyponatremia can increase your risk of death. And the risk is, tends to be proportionate to how deranged it is. So the lower the sodium or the higher the sodium beyond the normal parameters, the higher the risk of death. So in one intensive care study, it increased mortality by about 40%. With hyponatremia, similarly, it can increase the risk of death. But again, it depends very much on the severity of it. So the most severe form would have the highest risk of death. In addition to mortality, it increases your length of hospital stay. So with hyponatremia, it can increase your risk of hospital stay by about 11%. And with hypernatremia, in that same intensive care study, it increased your length of stay by almost a third, by 28%. It can increase the cost of hospitalization by about 8% with hyponatremia. And also with hyponatremia, there can be long-term morbidity. So for example, it can make you less steady on your feet and increase risk of falling over. And it also causes osteoporosis, so the increased risk of fracturing a bone if you were to fall over. Hypernatremia doesn't tend to be a chronic condition because of those powerful mechanisms I mentioned earlier that would prevent you remaining hypernatremic for long. These impacts are rather significant, clearly. So when it comes time to treat dysnatremia, what do we do? With hypernatremia, it's generally a question of replacing the water loss with fluid that is hypotonic, so less concentrated relative to what's in the blood. And that could either be in the form of water that the patient drinks or intravenous fluid that is administered for the patient. With hyponatremia, the treatment very much depends on the cause. So the two most common causes are either volume depletion, and in that situation, you would treat them with isotonic or sometimes hypertonic fluid to replace the volume lost. But with inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, generally the most common treatment is actually fluid restriction, so the exact opposite. So it really depends on the cause of hyponatremia as to what the appropriate treatment would be. Dr. Zulis, why did your team want to examine the impact of dysnatremia specifically on patients with COVID-19? 
We conceived and started designing this study back in uh, April 2020, only around two months ago after the onset of the epidemic. There were three main facts which made us uh, thinking about the study and finally designing. The first one is there is a very well-known and well-established U-shaped relationship between sodium and mortality. So we know that in general hospital populations, in patients with a variety of conditions, high sodium or low sodium increase uh, patient mortality quite significantly. The second fact is that uh, pneumonia, because of bacteria, is associated uh, very often with low sodium. So around 20 to 25% of patients with bacterial pneumonia have low sodium. And the third fact is that these patients with pneumonia low sodium tend to have prolonged hospital admission, have higher mortality and higher morbidity. So the apparent question for us, and because of our special interest as a research group in sodium abnormalities, was if abnormal sodium was with COVID-19 and also if it carried any association with poor prognosis or not. At the time we conceived this, and actually start undertaking the study, there were no data at all about sodium and cold. So how did your study evaluate the impact of dysnatremia in this population? And then, of course, we want to hear, what did you find? The study was done towards the end of the first wave of the pandemic in London, where the two hospitals uh, that contributed to the study are based. So the first hospital is Whittington Hospital, which is a hospital in North London. The second is University College Hospital, which is a tertiary referral hospital in central London. And so we looked at patients that attended consecutively with severe COVID and had 488 patients. And we collected some demographic details about the patients and also we were interested in some comorbidity details. And then we, in terms of outcome measures, we really focused primarily on what was the risk of death, whether they required advanced respiratory support. So that was defined as a continuous positive airway pressure or invasive mechanical ventilation. And the third was whether they developed acute kidney injury. Our secondary objective later on was about examining the relationship between sodium and inflammation. And what really marked our study out as different from other studies that have subsequently emerged is the longitudinal nature of our data collection. We realized that collecting data just at the point of admission to hospital wasn't enough. And so we were interested in what happened and whether there was a change over time. So in addition to the first day, we also looked at data on day three, day six, day 11, and day 18 to see whether any trends emerged and how things changed over time. That was really what stands our study out differently compared to other studies. In terms of the results, the first finding was that hyponatremia was common. About a quarter of patients had hyponatremia whereas hypernatremia was less common, about 5%. This meant that about a third of all our patients had an abnormal sodium at the time of presenting to the hospital. 
And because of our longitudinal design, we also ask the question, what about patients who ever have an abnormal sodium? And that number is about 62%. So it's very common to have an abnormal sodium at some point during hospitalization. With regards to the mortality data, we showed that hypernatremia increased the risk of mortality by about three times. So you had a three times increased risk of mortality. And if you look at on day three or day six specifically, that risk is about 2.3 times or 2.4 times on day three and day six respectively. With regards to hyponatremia, we found that that did not increase the risk of death. We looked at the mortality in relation to a change into their sodium status throughout the hospitalization. So that is, if somebody had a normal sodium throughout their hospital stay, they had about a 20% mortality. By comparison, somebody who was hypernatremic at any point had about a 56% mortality, whereas somebody who was both hyper and hyponatremic at some point had about a 45% mortality. With regards to respiratory support, we found that hyponatremia increased the need for respiratory support by 2.2 fold. So more than twice the risk of needing respiratory support. And then in terms of acute kidney injury, about just over a third of our patients had acute kidney injury, but this was not associated with sodium levels. Why might dystrophemia have such a significant impact on patients with COVID-19? I mean, what we have uh, quite clearly illustrated in our study is that abnormal sodium is significantly associated with poor outcomes. But first of all, I need to highlight a very important point. This uh, significant association does not necessarily equal a causal relation. So we do not know yet if there is a causality in this relationship. What we know in general about the issue of abnormal sodium mortality is, and this is a consensus nowadays in general, that abnormal sodium can be a marker of severe disease in a lot of patients, but we increasingly think that in other patients, actually it can contribute per se through organ dysfunction and through mechanisms which are not clear yet. So being more specific, high sodium, essentially also almost always we know that uh, indicates uh, water deficit. So in this case, we know that hypovolemia is a driver. These patients have volume depletion, and we think that this is a driver of the excess mortality. In patients with low sodium, it is slightly more complicated. So then we have, uh, as we explained before, and my colleague, Dr. Julian Wong explained, two main groups. The first one, again, is the group with low volume of fluid, of hypovolemia. And again, we think that this is when hypovolemia drives the mortality. The second one is the group of patients with inappropriate uh, secretion of antidiuretic hormone. And this is a very significant group because there is a lot of evidence in general, but nowadays some also evidence from other research groups in COVID-19 that patients with severe inflammation and the hyperinflammatory phenotype 
these are patients that often can secrete too much antiuretic hormone and have low sodium. So you can see that sometimes it, the, the driver is hypovolemia, but some other times we think that the driver is this hyperinflammatory response. How might these findings from this study and the work that you're doing help healthcare providers in their treatment of patients with COVID-19? At the time, we didn't know a lot about COVID-19. This was, of course, back in the beginning of 2020. And at the time, there was a, a kind of worldwide approach of quite a lot of caution with regards to fluid hydration because of concern that it might exacerbate or cause a condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome, where there would be excessive water on the lungs. But really, this wasn't our experience uh, looking at our patients. So I guess the value of this study is that first, it helps people recognize those who might be at highest risk of death. So those with hypernatremia are at a much higher risk of death. Secondly, it might help people recognize those who are at the highest risk of needing respiratory support. So those might be the hyponatremic patients. And then thirdly, it highlights just the importance of frequent and regular assessment of somebody's fluid status and a proactive approach to prevent dehydration. It seems that dysnatremia, whether it's hyper or, or hypo, may be an important warning flag for other problems. In the hospital setting, is dysnatremia something that is routinely tested regularly? And if not, why and should it be? Um, sodium levels are routinely tested uh, on hospital admission of patients. Are actually some of the most frequently laboratory blood tests which take place across urea, creatinine, and potassium, the other main electrolyte. Obviously, I think uh, what is very important to add that so far we had sodium levels for so many patients, but we did not realize how much extra information they could add. And the good thing with sodium measurement is that this is a simple test, a quick one, a cheap one, and an easy to use. So it has all the advantages of a screening test you can use regularly. We also think that in view of our results, apart from testing the levels on admission, is essential and extremely important to continue testing regularly every 48 or 72 hours throughout admission. So it could be a red flag for the clinicians to intensify their uh, monitoring of patient or either the treatment. What further work is needed to improve management of care for patients with either hyponatremia or hypernatremia? I think we have a lot of challenges to face. First of all, I think bearing all these results in mind is very important from now on to raise awareness of the significance of abnormal sodium. So all as clinicians, we need to act on them in the way that we have an excellent prognostic marker so this can guide us on day-to-day -day decision making about admitting patients, moving to high dependency unit or intensive care unit or taking other decisions. The second point, which also is very important, and this is mainly regarding to hyponatremia, and we showed also this in the study, is that unfortunately, most of the times we don't investigate hyponatremia. So we cannot treat it appropriately. 
And the issue is, without knowing the cause and the type of hyponatremia, we cannot uh, give the right treatment. So following this is extremely important, all clinicians, when uh, they encounter a patient with low sodium, to do at least the very basic laboratory workup, which is paired serum and urine sodium and osmolality, and at least serum cortisol. And then, depending on the results, this can guide their treatment. So all this is about how we can improve the management. Another point I would like to raise, and this is for our group and other groups all over the world to study, and hopefully we should have results sooner than later, is other future roles of sodium levels. And there have been some reports and there has been speculation and some evidence that sodium may help us to identify patients who have what we call cytokine storm, this hyperinflammatory response with the massive release of cytokines. And we know that there is a relationship, essentially patients with very high levels of interleukins and IL-6 can have low sodium. So potentially, and this is to be studies, and this could uh, help our patients a lot, we could use this in order to predict patients who will have this hyperinflammatory phenotype, and even then targeting these patients for immunomodulatory treatments such as IL-6 antagonists or other therapies. So let's wait what the future will show us. I wanted to thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. Great pleasure. And so if you listeners would like to hear more about this study, we invite you to read the article. We will have a link to that article in the description of this podcast at endocrine.org slash podcast. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Zulus and Wong. If you'd like to read their article in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, there's a link to it in the description of this episode at endocrine.org slash podcast. If there's a topic you'd like to see us discuss on the podcast, be sure to let us know by emailing us at endocrine at podcast.org. And as always, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.